Welcome back to the program. For 40 years, the focus of the conversations about Watergate have been what did the president know and when did he know it? The revelations from the release of and listening to more and more of the 3,700 hours of White House tapes has pretty much clarified that issue. What still remains very murky, however, perhaps because it exists in both the realm of psychology as well as fact, is why. Why did Nixon insist on the tapes? Why didn't he destroy them? And deeper still, why did a man whose entire life was devoted to the pursuit of the presidency in his own place in history destroy himself by his own hand, his own actions, and his own decisions? Few have gotten closer to answering these questions than my guest today, John Dean. Nixon's White House counsel, the man who first told Nixon of Watergate is a growing cancer on the presidency, who himself has spent 40 years thinking and writing about these issues, now on the 40th anniversary of Nixon's resignation, has written the Nixon defense. It is my pleasure to welcome John Dean back to this program to talk about the Nixon defense, what he knew and when he knew it. John Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Jeff. I, I, I must say I was able to fill in a lot of gaps in this drill where I didn't know all those facts. Talk a little bit about that and really what's new in the Watergate story after all of these years. What are those holes, what are those places that have been filled in as a result of your research and listening to so many of these tapes? Well, what, what happened is when I agreed to take this on, I had no, no idea of the dimensions of what I was taking on. Uh, I was curious to know how somebody as savvy as Nixon, politically, uh, seemingly a highly intelligent man, could just make the mess he made of his presidency uh, over a, a, really just a bungle burglary uh, that he had not directly ordered. Uh, I had always sensed that, I, and I now can confirm that after going, going through the tapes, but uh, that's where it started. And I realized to do it, uh, I was going to have to listen to some of the tapes that had, had not been transcribed. So I first needed to catalog all the tapes. Uh, nobody had done that, to my surprise. And it, it is possible, uh, because of the way the National Archives has, has, for 40 years, in fact, I dedicate the book to them, they they are unsung heroes in, in, in preserving this history and, and making it usable and workable. They've gone through and prepared subject logs on every conversation where they name you know who Nixon is talking to, and while they don't prepare t- transcripts, they do put the gist of what the conversation was. They get keywords and what have you. So I went through and pulled out all the Watergate conversations. That turned out to be a thousand conversations. Uh, some of them are fleeting and, and brief. Uh, some of them, and as, as it progresses, become uh, all-consuming. They're, they go on for hours, uh, where they're just nothing but Watergate. So once I got that catalog, then I looked to see what was transcribed, and I found about 80 Watergate special prosecution file transcripts uh, that were of varying qualities. Uh, the, the, the ones that were used in trials uh, were all very good. Uh, the other ones were just FBI secretary first drafts and not good at all. Uh, they often had the wrong person uh, attributed to mm-hmm. speaking, and so those I had I knew I had to redo. Uh, Stanley Cutler, who the, the historian who forced the archives to release the uh, he was the plaintiff in an action by the uh, the Public Citizen Law Group. Uh, he he did a book of transcripts, and he had about 320 Watergate conversations. 
And I asked Sammy, I said, how did you select them? He said, well, I, I selected the conversations that looked interesting. <laughs> and I said, that's a pretty good criteria for uh, doing a book. Uh, but what I discovered when I listened to the conversations of Stanley's uh, transcripts, often there would be an ellipses, and that could be 20, 30, 40 minutes of what I found to be very interesting and important material. Uh, I also knew, since Stanley had done his, that the archives had released some of the withdrawn material where people were talking about personal matters uh, that because those people were now deceased. Uh, Martha Mitchell and John Mitchell come to mind. Uh, a lot of that material was not, Stanley did not have access to because it had been withdrawn. So I discovered that it had been returned and, and put in to, back into the uh, recordings. So I, I, I then looked at the other 600 conversations and realized nobody had seemed to even pay any attention to these, and they were not unimportant conversations. Uh, so I, 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 I decided I had to redo all the 1,000 conversations uh, just from scratch, and I got a, a, a team of grad students started on it, and uh, I did a number of them myself. I found it was easiest if I worked from somebody else's draft. Uh, the, the most time-consuming is the, the 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 blank page, if you will, and starting from scratch. So, if I correcting them was faster for me to spend my time than trying to do them from scratch. So, I had the grad students. Uh, if I wasn't working with Stanley's uh, transcripts or and tweaking those, or the prosecutors, uh, then I. Soon, the, uh, the, the my transcribers caught up and started feeding me uh, their supply. Uh, but it was a huge project. It, it, it went on literally till ninety days uh, before we published here, and that's only been a few days now. Is one of the things that makes this story more confusing, a little murkier, is that there is not a crystal clear narrative line to the extent that people wanted to believe for a long time of Nixon order simply ordering the burglary, that it had more to do with the atmosphere that was created, that all of the various things that, that Nixon wanted to do, that he talked about, the paranoia, the things that he couldn't even remember that he told Chuck Colson, and the general sense of everything, including selling ambassadorships that was going on in the White House at the time. I think that's a good point. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't order the break-in, so why is he covering it up? What's his concern? The White House hasn't ordered the break-in, so what's his concern with the White House? Well, <laughs> I, I, one of the things I tried to avoid was a lot of commentary, as I, I told the story. Let, just let the tapes, uh, I used, you know, I, I convert them to narrative and dialogue. Just let them speak for themselves. Uh, there's very clear things that come through to me. Um uh, Nixon is not so sure in those first days whether, he, in fact, he has told Colson to uh, to break in the Watergate. Uh, and he just keeps probing and pushing until he gets the answer to that, and he's satisfied he hasn't through Colson. Colson isn't concerned. He then becomes concerned with John Mitchell, and I understand that because Haldeman told me once that Richard Nixon, excuse me, did not believe he would be president if John Mitchell had not, in essence, left his law practice, which was a very successful law practice, and taken over his campaign in 68. Uh, so he was indebted to Mitchell. and he, had, he is the one who insisted Mitchell become attorney general and come to Washington, and that hadn't worked out so well. Mitchell had, had, had not been a terribly good attorney general. 
Uh, and so here was now uh, the fact that Mitchell could go to jail. And, I, and, and clearly, on a very human level, Nixon is saying, this just can't happen. Uh, but he's very deeply concerned about it. So that's how he really gets in and starts approving the cover-up uh, in the early days. He tries to stay out of it initially, uh, but for obvious reasons of, of Mitchell, uh, and he's not so sure about Haldeman. And what what's also uh, is very telling uh, to me, Jeff, is that these guys are not telling him the truth. They're not giving the information he needs. Uh, to make decisions. He doesn't know the White House is actually involved with these same people who have been arrested at the Watergate, uh, that they have been authorized by Ehrlichman uh, to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. So he, there are a lot of mixed things going on, and I just let the reader kind of sort this out because they, the reader will, does eventually. I've talked to people who had no knowledge of this book or this story who finally figured out by the time they finished the, uh, the last page. But even for Colson and Liddy and others, Watergate wasn't even the end point. Watergate was something that was supposed to be just en route to what the object was that That's night, right. which was to go to McGovern's campaign headquarters. That's right. You got it. You exactly the point. This was a uh, they they had uh, screwed up the initial one. They didn't even know where Larry O'Brien's office was when they went in, into the Watergate uh, in the Democratic headquarters, and they had gone back to repair a bug that didn't work. And if they had been arrested at McGovern's headquarters, you can trace that right back to Nixon, because there's a tape of Nixon telling Haldeman to put a plant, not a flower, but a, <laughs> a, a PLANT, uh, like a like a it could be an electronic advice. It could be that's the way Liddy would certainly have interpreted. But a uh, it could be an intern, it could be a secretary, it could be a chauffeur. Uh, but to get somebody inside uh, the McGovern headquarters, uh, and Haldeman takes that directive from from the, the president, and has his aide Gordon Strawn call Liddy to the White House and reads the note to him uh, that he's gotten from Haldeman. And that is change your intelligence gathering functions from Senator Muskie, who had been the uh, uh, primary and most likely uh, candidate that would be opposing Nixon uh, to McGovern, who is now pulling way ahead in the uh, in the primary races in the Democratic Party. Had that arrest occurred uh, in McGovern's headquarters, because they tried to they had tried daylight and and earlier efforts to get into McGovern's headquarters, uh, it's traceable directly to the Oval Office. And, and the other part of that, coming back to the point you made before about Mitchell, that the actual break-in at Watergate was more likely ordered by Mitchell or Magruder. Clearly was. What happened is, uh, when Magruder presents the final plan uh, for Liddy's schemes, uh, the first two have been shot down. I, 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 I sat with amazement at the first one, and when Mitchell winks at me, I know this isn't going anywhere. Uh, they tell me they ask me to come back. I get late to the second meeting where Liddy's presenting his plan, and I hear him talking about illegal things. And I, of course, this is all on tape, so it, it, I'm totally corroborated as I testify to this. And you know that the uh, uh, I said you shouldn't even be discussing these things in the office of attorney general. Went back and told Haldeman. I actually know today. I told Haldeman after the first meeting as well. This was just an insanity. I had earlier 
turned off another uh, insane potential break-in at the Brookings Institute, uh, which is why I had been excluded from knowing about the plumbers and why they had people like Hunt and Liddy working at the White House. But anyway, uh, when I uh, uh, when I learned the uh, the fact that it had been approved from uh, Magruder, he said that he presented the plan to to Mitchell. And he's testified to this that included the Watergate break-in and one other. They hadn't they hadn't designated it. And the reason they wanted to go into Watergate is because Larry O'Brien was causing them such fits at that time with the ITT scandal. So they were looking for financial information that they could somehow embarrass O'Brien. Uh, that was also happening at the White House. Uh, and I, every time that, that, that they discuss in these conversations what was going on, I put a footnote and then collected them all into an appendix so people can read exactly what the White House understood was going on and why they were breaking in. And it's it's clearly to, to get some sort of financial dirt on on. on uh, O'Brien. It's a pure fishing expedition. They, Liddy goes in uh, with the authorization the first time from from Magruder, who tells him to go in and take pictures and what have you. And uh, the second time, nobody ordered it. Liddy has been chewed out by Mitchell uh, at a phone co- during a phone conversation. Magruder's present, uh, and Liddy was told that the stuff he's getting is junk uh, and it's not worth the money. Well, Liddy just takes it on himself, and he go, decides, rather than go into the uh, McGovern headquarters first, we'll go to the Watergate and, and fix the bug and uh, uh, get find Larry O'Brien's office, because they, they had not even been in Larry O'Brien's office. You know, there's a myth about Liddy, who has, in the years since Watergate, presented himself like some sort of James Bond character that Nixon <laughs> has hired. Well, th- this guy isn't up to the Maxwell Smart level. I mean, he's, he's a joke. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, people uh, ascribe professionalism to him, just don't know what a ham-handed operation this really was. What about the used material that they allegedly wanted from Larry O'Brien's office? Well, uh, Nixon is interested in Howard Hughes having having, uh, O'Brien on a retainer. Uh, Liddy, apparently, unbeknownst to anybody at the White House, uh, he and Howard Hunt, uh, Hunt worked for a guy by the name of Robert Bennett, who later became a senator. Now, he was the son of a senator. Uh, he had the Hughes account in Washington, and uh, Liddy and Hunt cook up a scheme to break into a Las Vegas uh, publisher who's got apparently some information uh, they think of a political nature uh, that would be of interest to use, and it's just a convoluted plot. This has nothing to do with the White House. Nobody in the White House knew anything about it, and they're just flabbergasted when they hear about it. As all of this kind of takes over, you have this conversation with the president talking about the cancer on the presidency, thinking that this is going to be the the penultimate conversation that really gets him to realize what's going on, and you talk about the fact that he had an answer for everything at that point. Well, you know, when I went in on March 21st to lay that out, I really didn't know how much he knew. Today, of course, listening to all these tapes, I knew he knew everything. Uh, he's not as active in the early stage, but he's fully knowledgeable. And uh, what I don't think anybody had pointed out to him, and he had, you know, he sort of thinks he's his own lawyer and that he's uh, able to handle these things. He really doesn't. 
he he none of us were were I'm learning about obstruction of justice uh by reading just the code and some of the cases and what have you because I uh, after the election became concerned we were on the wrong side of the law and sure enough when I find we are I go up to Ehrlichman again and I say listen uh we're we're violating uh the obstruction statute we're probably involved in a conspiracy he doesn't want to hear it doesn't want to hear it doesn't want he says I don't have a criminal intent I said I don't either but John that isn't the way you get on the wrong side of the law and I reminded him of of, of sort of some law school 101 but he didn't want to discuss it in fact there's some conversation where that comes up even later where I I'm walking around with Xerox copies of the statute and trying to convince him that we're we're breaking the law and he raises front of Nixon in some of those conversations so his counsel here reads the statutes but I don't think he reads them well and then when behind my back they say well that shows you how far off the track he's fallen <laughs> and of course I'm dead on right but anyway when I go in on March 21st I don't know what he knows today I know he knows it all and that's the day I think I really meet Richard Nixon uh, I went to work for an image of a man I thought was a hell of a president uh, I think the curtain came back that day, and I realized uh, this is not who I thought he was. Because I, I tell him everything is going wrong. I'm speaking in blunt criminal terms, and he has an answer for everything. Everything I say, uh, like you know, one of the aides uh, who's involved has committed perjury. And he says, well, John, perjury is a tough rap to prove. That is what I expected to hear from him. And then that, that conversation was on the 21st. On the 23rd, there's the tape that really is sort of the smoking gun tape. Talk about that. And that smoking gun tape happens real early. The, the March 21 conversation, of course, is eight months later. Right. Uh, the, the smoking gun tape, as you know from... I put a uh, extended. I put a footnote and then a an end note to to explain that this thing is firing blanks. Uh, that it was not, and I, I don't believe it was an obstruction of justice even. Um, but by the time the smoking gun tape surfaces, uh, I'm out of there. Haldeman's out of there, and Nixon doesn't really remember what the conversation's about. Uh, and he probably could have survived that conversation being released publicly if they'd have ever understood fully. I did about a, oh, maybe a 50-page single-spaced note on that, which I didn't put in the book <laughs> because I already had too much in the book. Uh, I may do a law journal article or just not even a law journal article, just a regular magazine article and lay that out to show I... I give just the gist in in the book of why it wasn't the smoking gun, uh, but it wasn't. It was it was uh, it was totally misread at the time of being Nixon trying to stop the FBI investigation. Uh, Nixon was savvy enough to know uh, that not even the CIA could stop the FBI investigation. You, it, it's a battleship. I mean, once it starts, uh, you can't turn it around. One of the things that, that becomes clearer and clearer as this narrative unfolds is the degree to which the White House was literally taken over by this issue. And and the whole decision-making process that was going on at the time, which hardly seems well thought out or deliberate, but very seat of the pants. One of the surprises to me is how seat of the pants these decisions are. 
Nixon will make a decision, he'll make a bad decision, and then he tries to impose the facts of that bad decision and make them into a reality. Uh, and this goes on time after time after time. Uh, I'm one who thought this man used to sit down with either option papers or his yellow pad and look at, you know, write down the pro and cons on one side of the sheet and the other versus the other. Uh, not at all. He's just shooting from the hip and not thinking him through, not looking at the implications, not getting all the information. In fact, not really avoiding the information he needed to make good decisions. And that's that's a that's a surprise. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I I was trying to figure out why somebody as savvy as Nixon could get in the trouble he got into. Well, he's just not as savvy as I thought he was, and most people think he is. Is it about not being as savvy, or is it about a fundamental character weakness that really is at the core of this story? Well, th- there is that, no question. It, it's a combination of, uh, as I've said when summarizing this, uh, it's a combination of his character and his decision-making. And uh, his savviness might have gotten him around his character flaws uh, if he'd been really clever, but he's not that clever. And uh, he, you know, he wraps himself in the office of the president and thinks that power can protect him from far more than it was ever able to protect him. That's the famous line, when the president does it, it's not illegal. That's right. (laughs) There really seems to be no moral line as this story, for Nixon, as this story continues to unfold. Uh, You're right. There there was... uh, there was just no no uh, move that he was not willing to take uh, along the line you're saying. If the president does it, he thinks it's legal. He he thought that that, that uh, it, it's sort of like the power of the king. Uh, in fact, there was a there was a there was an amazing brief argued uh, before the Supreme Court that the Solicitor General Erwin uh, Griswold refused to argue. Uh, that the Attorney General did not need uh, statutory power to wiretap. And the, the Justice Department took that case to, to the, all the way to the Supreme Court. And they had a, uh, an assistant Attorney General by the name of Marty and argued it. And he literally goes back to King George uh, as the basis. And I think there's some thinking in Nixon that he has those kind of royal powers, that, uh, that he, he's a lawmaker. And, of course, that isn't the way it works. Sort of the icing on the cake in in some way in all of this is the story you tell in the tapes in his conversation with Tom Pappas. Talk about yes, that. that. That's another that's another shocker. Uh, I had no idea that Nixon was personally raising money. And on March second, Haldeman explains to him that Mitchell's having. I've reported to him that Mitchell's having trouble raising money for the Watergate defendants. Uh, to keep them on the reservation, to keep them in place, as as, as, as Haldeman explains, and that uh, that Tom Pappas, uh, a former ambassador to Greece uh, in the Eisenhower years, and a very successful American businessman in in Greece uh, now or at that time, uh, has been helping Mitchell out. So that's on March second. On March sixth. Nixon has a dinner for the heavy contributors, and Pappas and he start talking, and Pappas says, I, I would like to talk to you. And so Nixon, having this in the back of his mind, uh, says absolutely, and, and puts him on the schedule for 10 o'clock the next morning. 
just before that meeting, there's a conversation with uh, Haldeman where Nixon said, you know, somebody told me about Pappas helping out, and then Haldeman said, yeah, I did, and I, I didn't. Uh, and Nixon said, well, I've got him coming in. He said, well, I didn't do that for reason of him coming in. But in the first time it had come up, uh, Haldeman had mentioned that Pappas was telling Mitchell that he wanted to keep the ambassador to Greece, a fellow by the name of Henry Tosca, in Greece, and they had planned to move him out uh, to another post or some other function or even let him go. Uh, but but uh, Pappas wanted to keep him, and, and Nixon had said, keep him, good. And, and, and so he recalled all that. And so before Pappas comes in, they have this conversation. Then Pappas arrives. And it, uh, interesting behind-the-scenes story for me is when I wrote that up, and after listening to it, I said, this sounds like it's right out of The Godfather, uh, because Pappas has kind of a raspy voice, <laughs> and, uh, and it's just very conspiratorial-sounding uh, when you hear it. And so I used that line uh, in, 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 the, in the draft, in my manuscript, and my editor sent a note back saying, John, you've been extremely good in writing this book of really not doing that kind of thing, where you, you, you let the story tell itself and you don't characterize it personally. And he said, do you really want that in there? I said, you know, he, he, he was right. And so I, I took it out. Uh, because the conversation does, uh, uh, you know, it stands on its own. And I, throughout the book, I just tried to let the the, uh, the tale on tell itself, if you will. And in, in a couple of minutes we have left here, John, most of the Watergate reforms are out the window today. What do you think is the lasting legacy of Watergate? Well, you know, that's a real interesting question. I I, uh, I have been... Not in California, but almost all the all the rest of the country. I've done one in California. The one reform that seems to have lasted is the American Bar Association and the professional bars of all the states have insisted that lawyers not get in the kind of trouble that those involved in Watergate got in, and then later in Enron and and what have you, because they're. So I, when I was working on this book, I developed a what they call a CLE, a continuing legal education program, and uh, did a couple of them. And had with, with, I do them with a friend of mine, a trial lawyer from Cleveland, uh, that helps break it up. And 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 uh, he's he's gotten some real expertise in some of the areas that are now the requirements of the ethics laws that really came directly out of my testimony. So by taking this history and, and, and reminding the audience or those who didn't live through it, uh, exposing them to these things with a lot of audio-visual, playing some tapes, we've, uh, uh, we've really been shocked uh, at, at how popular this program is. We've done about 85 of them. I've done, I've done one in Los Angeles, none in California. Uh, but all over the rest of the country. And uh, it's just primarily not in California because I haven't really explored it in California because I got consumed with finishing the book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, clearly the bar associations uh, are not going to let uh, uh, th- th- this sort of thing happen again. And the reforms they made because of Watergate are really real world. Uh, the the few that they could not get through the House of Delegates at the time in the post-Watergate years, Enron enabled them to close that gap. 
So that's the one legacy of Watergate that I'm sure is going to be lasting. Uh, the others are investigative journalism, largely gone because of the expense of it and corporate ownership of journalism uh, today. Uh, the independent counsel law, number one recommendation of the Senate Watergate Committee, gone. Uh, it, it sufficiently caused problems for both parties that they let the sunset provision uh, uh, take the law off the books. Uh, so all the major, the campaign finance, another major reform. Uh, the Supreme Court, for its own reasons, under the First Amendment, uh, in Buckley versus Viejo, followed by a series of cases down to most recently uh, Citizens United, has eviscerated the post-Watergate campaign reform laws, uh, which even Nixon, in the, as you know, in the book, mm-hmm. talks about how dangerous and how you know all this money uh, in these campaigns it's just asking for this kind of trouble uh, and we haven't solved that problem uh, that's for sure so uh, one legacy I can assure you is a level of ethical and professionalism within the bar that came out of Watergate is, is, is still being pushed by the bar the other I can't I can't be sure what uh, uh, other than the fact it's unacceptable behavior, clearly that uh, uh, the American public won't won't tolerate. John Dean, the book is the Nixon Defense: What He Knew and When He Knew It. It's just out from Viking. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 